Welcome, welcome to the Utopia series. In today's episode, which is titled Convivial Responsibility, we're going to discuss the idea of what society owes each other, be that economically or in terms of resources. Here, I want to tackle one of the most important resources, knowledge. We're talking about who holds the keys and the ability to shape the information that we share, how it's shared and who has access to it. Today I'm joined by Neil Pinder who is an educator and has worked in London for over 25 years. He works to introduce architecture to students at different stages in their education. I'll pass him over so he can introduce himself. Uh, Good afternoon, Um, Lauren. It's an absolute pleasure to be connecting with some young people, a young person like yourself who uh, has reached out to connect to well, not an old fogey, but somebody like myself who's been in education for for quite a long time and who's been um, championing young people from non-traditional and traditional backgrounds and diverse male, female, um, to spread the word that creativity uh, really does change lives, be it through architecture, be it through landscaping, fashion, um, any sort of real creativity, it really does change his life and it does change, uh, save lives. So what I have been doing for the last 25 years is basically to infuse young people, to get them to think that they have the key, they hold the cards. Uh, you may not think so because uh, society is always telling you that we're the only, well, the elder people are the only ones that can give you the knowledge but you do have the knowledge, you have the inspiration, you have the guidance. And um, this was so eloquently uh, um, spoken, orated, whatever way you want to put it, by Amanda Gorman at the presidential swearing in ceremony in um, Washington, D.C. this week. She's 22 years old, but her poem, her, her, her uh, words, her script, was so passionately felt by so many people like myself, like you, from around the world. And I think that it shows that just given give people like yourself, like ourselves when we were younger, a little bit of faith, a little bit of responsibility, and we could definitely, definitely make the world a better place. So, as I said, and and sorry, getting back to your uh, original question, yes, I'm a school teacher, but also um, I teach architecture, which I, as you said, I introduced to the curriculum and I had some, I've been fortunate to be given a bit more of a freer hand by my head and my principals in my school, in my respective schools, and also to be surrounded by absolutely fantastic architects designers and creative people because it's a collective thing that when I find them they're there to help me instead of fobbing me off so it's meeting like-minded people so this is it's it's a multifaceted approach I'm just one part of the equation but without the other parts of the equation it's very difficult for it to actually um to work as as fluid as it has been working and also how it will work in the future. Great. Um, Can I actually ask you, what is the first thing that drew you to architecture? Well, actually, I wanted to be a a sculptor. And so I went went to art school. I went to Campbell Art School. 
and um, I, and my art teacher, who was the the head of um, art uh, or head of creativity at the Crespus Theatre in Hammersmith years ago, he was the one who recognised that I was quite good at art, and he in and he used to say to me, "Look at this, look at this, look at this," and I'd be forever looking at different things that he would pop up and show me. So having an inspirational person like him him or them that actually enables this sort of um, connectivity to happen and then for you to start to follow your passion. So I went to art school. Art school was amazing. Um, But I didn't actually um, pursue sculpture at art school. I I did three-dimensional design specialising in silversmithing. And that was another way of working on my hands and experimenting with different materials, albeit uh, metals. But that enabled me to look at form, shape, work out, calculate, and, and express myself through these different materials. And I think that was the sort of beginning in terms of uh, my passion for actually knowing that I wanted to do something design-wise. Uh, I grew up in a in, in a South London council estate, which was Patmore Estate, which I didn't realise at the time had such an influence because the shapes that it was it was designed from built from part brick, part white um, white paint, uh, breaking up the actual building itself. Um, later on, when I went back and looked at it, this was quite inspirational in my idea, looking of how designs and shape interlock and, and different materials work with each other. And then from then on, it was just a matter of everywhere I went, I would just look and see building shapes. And when my parents went back to Barbados, um, it gave me the opportunity to redesign the flat that we were living in. And that was the sort of, you know, catalyst, the, 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 the sort of beginning for me of designing. And then my friends would come over, see it, and then I'd start designing uh, their little flats and apartments. That is really interesting. So you kind of had the opportunity to test out different ideas and to explore different interests. I think that in, like, my education as well, that's been really helpful, just being able to tap into the different interests that you didn't even realize were there so initially you wanted to be a sculptor wanted to go to art school but then you know you you found different ways of looking at things and you mentioned that your teacher at art school was really helpful with that as well and secondary school he was the sort of inspiration the people at art school they just reaffirmed our uh, different aspects of my creativity yeah, no, I think that is like one of the really important things because now you've become a teacher yourself. So do you want to talk about how you landed in an educator role yourself? Short story. <laughs> Basically, um, I became a DJ. Mm-hmm. And, and I say to everybody, if you get a chance, be a DJ in your life. It, it's such a good feeling to mix music and have people share and the same vibe that you are trying to express, but you're expressing, expressing it with third-party musicians and, and people who think outside the box. And as I explained to you, I'm always playing music. Like now in the background, I've got Miles Davis playing uh, Kind of Blue, his album. And so I'm always playing music. So 
I started DJing and then I had the opportunity to do run my own night. This is while I was still at art school. And I was working in a Saturday job down the King's Road. So um, working in a Saturday job in a, in a clothes shop on the King's Road was utopia. Then uh, we asked to be a DJ because my friend couldn't do a night. So he said to me, Neil, can you fill in? So I filled in. And... And when I finished my art degree, I had the opportunity to go to um, Brighton to do my master's. But it was a it was a toss up between running a nightclub, planning a nightclub, rather DJing in a nightclub, or doing my master's. And put it this way, I became quite well known as a DJ and a promoter than <laughs> doing my master's. <laughs> so. Um, it was a way that I could connect with people. And then an oppor- another opportunity came up where someone said, look, um, one of my friends who was a, a, a teacher said, look, Neil, I can't um, teach in this school uh, and they're looking for a technician. Would you like to be a technician? I said, and, uh, working in the metalwork department. I said, yeah, why not? And so I started off working part-time in a metalwork department where I met this absolutely fantastic I'm going to call him an old boy because he was establishment, but he was so good. He was a craftsman, mm-hmm. an engineering craftsman. Mm-hmm. So um, he taught me so many different things. And, and he would say to me, Neil, that's a bit of a pig's ear when I started to do knurling. That's a bit of a pig's ear. I'll do it again. And he made me do it again and again. So he actually... I did a sort of an apprenticeship because I was working with him for a good year mm-hmm. and he was showing me different techniques and everything else and I loved it and I was only doing it two days a week because I didn't want it to interfere with my DJing career sort of thing. But at the same time, and it was in a boys' school, I remember, and at the same time, um, the kids would be coming asking me, can you help me do this? Can you help me do that? And I started helping them. And then one day, um, the head of department said, look, Neil, why don't you, um, why don't we get you to do a little bit of teaching with the kids, with a smaller group, and let's see how you get on. And I said, why not? And they gave me exactly what they wanted me to do. I had this small group of guys, and we just wired off each other, and we just they just started doing the work in really focusing. And from there on, um, he said, why don't you do a teacher's uh, training certificate? Mm. Because you've got a degree, just do a teacher's training certificate on top, PGCE or something like that. And so I said, uh, no, qualified teacher's status. I said, yeah, I will. And and I did it. And then from there on, I never looked back at working with young people. I mean, parallel to this, I used to work down the King's Road on Saturdays. I used to run a nightclub. And I also used to do youth work. Mm-hmm. And that was where I could was able to communicate with younger people than myself. And um, so it was all this connection of giving what I'd learned to somebody else, helping our, our kids in youth centres, doing youth work with them, taking them abroad and showing them a different experience to what they were um, accustomed to around the estates and the areas that they live in, in South London. So it was all, I was, at the same time, I enjoyed myself. I was always giving, there's always a part of me giving back to society. 
and which I really enjoyed, but I didn't really see it as giving back. I just saw it as me having fun through teaching them different things that I got taught. So it was just a transfer of knowledge. That's the way I interpreted it. And so from there on, I just uh, moved on, started working in school, got my first teaching job in a, in, a, in a second another school in South London, where I just started connecting the kids with students, teaching them design and technology at the time. And then suddenly, uh, uh, um, Victoria Thornton, I remember this, um, connected to me because she was running a scheme called Open House. London Open House, where every year they'd open up um, um, buildings of historical and architectural value around London. And um, at the same time, she was running an educational program to, which engaged with architects and students to look at um, uh, doing design and technology work in a different way. So she reached out to me, I connected with her, and then from there on, I um I started infusing students into becoming or wanting to becoming architects. And this was a girls' school that I was working in. So it was seen as, wow, these girls, some of them could really do excellent, fantastic product design work, but with an architectural twist, uh, which had not been seen. For, and, and the inspirational head there, a woman called Leslie Morrison, she just gave me a free reign to to combine the architecture with the product design or, or, or resistant materials, but at the same time, still look at the grades going up. So when I went to the girls' school, St. Martin's in the field, the, the grades were uh, 19% A to C grades. And when I left, uh, they went up to 90% just because of the way I was infusing them and, and, and getting them involved in not just, You've got to make a bird box. You don't, you know, you can make this, you can make that, you can make anything you want. And then my connections grew in the architectural world where anyone who wanted to do architecture, I just um, introduced them to the practice and then it moved on like that. So that was where I did my sort of apprenticeship through Victoria Thornton at that specific time. I think that entire journey is just so interesting to me because it's an unconventional way of arriving at a certain point. And I think what really stands out to me as well is the exchanges that you have were all very like earnest and they were very like genuine. So for example, the metal worker that you met and you were working with him for like a year and you were able to like learn from him and through his passion, like him exploring his own passion, you were also able to like take something from it. And essentially, you're doing the same thing as a teacher now, like you're inspiring, connecting students to other people and things like that. So I think it's just, it's a really interesting um, process and cycle that you're involved in and that you like generate and stimulate. So do you want to talk to us about celebrating architecture and how that came about? Celebrating architecture, from, so I moved from the girls' school, which is uh, St. Martin's in the field, as I said earlier, and then I moved to the school where I'm at now called Gravely School. Yeah. And I took uh, Victoria Thornton's uh, open house with me. So then I was able to um, introduce it into the curriculum and get students to look at architecture a bit more in depth while connecting through architectural practices so um 
I thought to myself, how can we celebrate the work that these kids were doing at the end of each competition every year? So I used to teach year nine students, which is 13-year-olds, 13, 14 architects, enter them into open, open cities um, architectural competition. And then they would, they used to get, well, they used to win different type, at different categories, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but when we took it back into school, I had to make it more high profile in this, within sides of school, because as you know, and I know, creativity is seen as a sort of only, we only bring them out at parent evening or if the governors are coming or, you know, if there's a mayor, Lord Mayor or somebody coming to the school, they do some of their performing arts and they show the art department a bit of product design, etc. So I wanted it to be much more embedded into the ethos of the school. So what I did is I came up with an idea to celebrate so we would have um, so I organized different architects to come in and, and, and give speeches. And so I made it an award ceremony so that the students who did really good uh, architectural work in the London Open House, but also accelerated uh, beyond their own sort of ideas and beyond their own expectations, they got rewards. So we had different categories. And, and that's how Celebrating Architecture was actually born, mm. uh, to celebrate the work of non-traditional and traditional students within inside of this school. And every year I would have different architects from the top architectural practices like May, Populous, Pernod, um, uh, to come to the school and from there and they would give little speeches about but I had to be so focused on the architects because you and I know architects can talk and they talk they go deep <laughs> they go so deep <laughs> that the kids used to get blurry eyes sometimes so I thought no let's have another way around of approaching how I would engage with the architects and subsequently get them engaged with the students. So what I did was was trying to find out a bit more about the architect. How are you making those connections with those architects as well? Like how do you get to know them? Was it just like sim as simple as sending out an email or were they people that you knew? Uh, as you know, you never send an, a, an email to an architect because if you hold your breath, you might be holding your breath for a long time. Um, architects talk about resilience. Mm. You know, they use this word resilience. You've got to be resilient. So I would get to know one, then get them to know another. And I would just phone them and say to them, look, I'm doing this. Uh, would you like to come? Blah, 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 blah. And in the end, they would get so peed off with me. And they'd say, all right, I would just come. You know, and, and for example, Wayne Hemingway. It took me two years to get Wayne Hemingway, who, who did Red or Dead. And... And Wayne is quite a phenomenon because he's always outside the box. Mm. And, you know, he's responsible for the Doc Martins, et cetera, et cetera. But I think he got so peed off of me emailing him, trying to get through to him and get messages. For two years, it was the path of least resistance that um, he said yes, and then he came. But once you get people who come and see what you do, mm. after, the architects, architects, engineers, artists, 
once they come and see what you do, then they go back and then they start to spread the word themselves. But it's that first initial step to, to, to bombard them and stuff like that, you know, is to, is, is to what gets them infused into it. Oh, by the way, at the same time, I, was a, uh, I became a trustee uh, of the Stephen Lawrence Trust. So that gave me more focus on how can we get people from non-traditional backgrounds into architecture. That was one of my, and Doreen, who's so inspirational. And, and she, if, if you need to see anybody who has got motivation, drive, um, uh, if you touch base with her, you will see that she is such an inspirational uh, figure. Uh, to get people, you had to basically call them, call them and call them, you know, and from there on. And so once you start getting on a sort of little bit of a trail, then it becomes a bit easier. It's never easy. Yeah. Because, you know, you still have to break new ground and you can't just sit back in and say, I've, I've got hair and this is it. There's always things to be done. Just off the back of that, then, what would be your advice for anyone that's trying to start something and trying to get people involved with a project, like an idea? Well, if you've got an idea, first of all, I'd say to my kids, if you, if you want to earn money, mm-hmm. get a job. But if you want your earning potential to be limitless, follow your passion. Right. And it's basically about passion. If you really, really, really believe in an idea, it, it, it may not happen straight away. It might not happen in two, three years' time, but you have to also make sure that you metamorphosize, change your idea mm-hmm. as you're going along and keep it fresh. Yeah. And just basically when you talk with people, be humble enough to take advice from them. And once you take advice from somebody else it just may stay stir you down another avenue where you didn't think and then if you look back and analyze you'll see that the idea or the concept you initially had is has metamorphosized so much that it wasn't like the original idea but it's growing in strength mm. and that is the beauty of it all is to is to follow your passion keep on persevering don't use people but ask for advice and help mm-hmm. and then add it to your repertoire. That is some amazing advice. Um, I think that kind of leads into the next question I had, which goes back to the idea of conviviality. And my question is, in a society, what do we owe each other? That is a very good question. What do we owe each other? We owe each other just some basic human, human point, human values. Mm-hmm. You know, the basics of human value, respect. We, we, we owe each other love. We owe each other karma. We, we owe each other the fact that without me, there's no you. Without you, there's no me. We owe each other. And we've got to realize that we are all connected in some way, shape or form. It, it's not about, um, I've done this, I can do this. You can't do anything on your own. Mm-hmm. And that we, we owe each other that connectivity of life. And with that, then we can grow and then we can um, move on and we could grow as a society. But without that, we will, we will just statuate. We'll just stay the same and we will not evolve 
in 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 creatively, emotionally, physically, mentally, we will not evolve. So that so we so that is the the basis of what my ethos, my philosophy, my karma. So I do yoga, I do a lot of yoga, and yoga tells you about your inner karma and your inner peace. And if we show everybody that we have an inner peace, an inner karma, an inner love, then we will get the same back. Yeah. Uh, tenfold or even more. It may not always work out. Don't expect it to happen straight away, but it will happen because that's the way that karma works out. I like that. Yeah. I think it goes into um, it plays well with the way you work as well. You create a sort of network, so you connect people to other people. So this idea of what we owe each other and what we give out and what we get back, it's kind of it plays into like this whole idea of like it's all about exchanges and it's all about connections as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I guess what's like the most important thing for you in terms of like establishing good connections with people, or how do you maintain a good connection with a colleague or like a person that you've met? Um, you never ever can guarantee that you're going to connect with someone. That's number one, you know, because our souls are different. They may have a good soul, but their soul and your soul may never, the the twain should never meet just because, you know, it's not meant to be. But to maintain connections, to develop connections is, in my books, is just to show people that you're genuine. You really are passionate. You're really genuine about what you believe in. And um, if they can help you and you can help them, because there's an old saying, the people you meet on the way up are the same people you meet on the way down. Interesting. So it's whatever you give out, Mm -hmm. remember that at some point you get that. Mm -hmm. So this is all about how we um, communicate with people, respect people. And then once we do that and somebody sees that you're you're the same way and that's how I make my connection and and they see that I'm genuine over the years because I'm not an architect I've never studied architecture I, I can appreciate it I look at it I can read about it etc but in the real terms in the real world you know I'm a fake architecture they may say you know just just because I didn't go down that prescribed route that they have been to university, et cetera, et cetera, and walked the planks for seven years, et cetera. Yeah. So um, I'm not a qualified architecture, but I appreciate architecture. I can understand the fundamentals of architecture. I can understand about space, form, shape, color, et cetera, et cetera. And, how, and because I'm creatively minded, I can see how they can all interlock and work together. And that is, I think that is, that is the core of it. Oh, that's amazing. That's like a great way of just summing it up and putting it together. And I guess that leads into your project, Homegrown Plus. Right. So, home, yeah, Homegrown Plus. So, Celebrating Architecture has grown and grown. And mm. just to recap, um, we're, we, we have teamed up with a fantastic, uh, and I've just got to give up some big ups here. Venetia Wolfendom. She is ama- she's amazing, Venetia. And uh, and I just can I just tell you a little story about how we got uh, how I got my first sort of contract in terms of being able to 
actually make a film and uh, um, deliver it to outside agency school. So this is another guy, who amazing guy, a guy called Ellis Woodman and Finn Harper. So Ellis and Finn from the Architectural Foundation, um, and they're based in the Royal College. So Finn is, is now the head of um, London Open House, uh, or Open City, rather, and Ellis is, is the head of um, the Architectural Foundation. So uh, Joseph was the one who introduced me to Finn, small role, mm-hmm. and said, um, look, uh, this was my teacher, and this is what he does, da, 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 da. so I had a meeting with them, and they said to me, Yes, it sounds a good idea. So at the time, um, at the time, I wanted to uh, basically um, make a film about my alumni. And Ellis said, well, why don't we just do a couple of workshops with, um, with some schools? Mm-hmm. And then after we can make a film about how you enthuse young people to get into architecture. And... Um, so I'm there and I'm, you know, I come from South London and I can blag a little bit. And I just said, yeah, 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 no problem, no problem. And um, Ellis said, right, uh, if you could go away, write up a proposal for me. And, and in my mind, when he's telling me this, I'm thinking, write a proposal? <laughs> what are you talking about? You know? And so um, I said, yeah, no problem, I'll fool it. It'll be done. And so, and this is the part where you have to have confidence and believe in yourself. Yeah. And also the fact that you know that there's somebody out there you can give a bell to and they're your backup. Mm-hmm. Right? So I left there buzzing and I'm thinking to myself, oh, what am I going to do? Who am I going to contact? Who can write up a, a proposal? Because they're going to want it in some sort of architectural form. Right, yeah. So, so I remember Venetia, I worked with Venetia on London Open House for, for quite a few years when she was head of the, head of the educational program there. And so um, I thought myself, Venetia, let me ring her. So I, I came out, I ran down the road, I rang Venetia and I said, Venetia, help, you know. And we sat and we came up with this idea of the pavilion project. For, for, for primary and secondary school. And then that's how the whole um, pavilion workshop that we started doing three years ago, how they started evolving. And um, at the same time, we was able to make a film about the work I do, uh, and that it's called Architecture for All. If you wanted to have a, a, a view of it, it's a great film to watch. Like I, I watched it myself, and I was like, "Yeah, this is really interesting." I mean, it really brings together the work that you've been doing. You get to hear it from the perspective of the students as well, which is really cool. So that was good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing that, that the ironic thing about that, and this is where you just got to roll with the roll with the moods and the punches. So mm-hmm. it was meant to be. Um, girls and guys but it ended up as all girls so some people might think it's a girls school but no it isn't all the boys had a football FA Cup final or whatever on the Saturday of my filming and they just said to me we can't do it we've got an F and I love football mm. I'm an Arsenal supporter and I looked at them and I thought to myself what would I have done <laughs> I would have gone football <laughs> so you can't you've got to as I said, roll with everything and just understand where, where people are coming from. And, if, you know, that's their passion and it would have been mine. 
mm-hmm. like me not going doing my masters and I became a DJ, you know. So I under you gotta understand how these young people and people make things. You know, it's not always, it doesn't always work out the way you want to. So that's how Celebration Architecture was born. We launched it at the uh, Royal College and with a, with, with a panel debate with um, the head of architecture there, Adrian LaHue, who gave us the full sort of run of the place. And the, basically in the, in the, in the, what called canteen sort of uh, staff room. And you got people like Banksy, uh, hanging up there and you know it was it's an amazing room to be in and that's where we launched celebrating architecture but yeah so they, that was how that was that came about and then homegrown plus now homegrown plus is a direct result of you know students who have left me that uh, we got them into university and um, but they still come back so they would come back to me and say uh, like Mark Warren who was my first first born I call him because he's not you know and, and, and I'm still friends with him now that's how he used to find me up and say uh, Mr Pinder we, I need to do some laser cutting I'd say look don't worry I'll sort it and he'd come back because you know in university you have to to um, to sign a sheet or wait in a queue yeah. to get stuff done, etc. So he'd ring me up in, in, from Brighton. He'd say to me, "Right, Mr. Pin, I need some stuff laser cut. Do you think?" I said, "Don't worry, I sort it. I'll get some material." So because I had a friend who owns a wood flooring company, and so I'd ring him and I'd say to him, "Look, could you sort Mark out with some words, or I'll sort somebody out with some stuff?" And he'd get it, bring stuff there and he'd use the laser cutter, the facilities. And this is what I extended to them so mm. that they had that, they know, they knew that I would be there for them at all stages of their, because I know how hard it is um, studying and getting materials and everything else. And our, school, and our school was really good at helping their old students. So um, one day I just thought, you know what, all of these, these, all of my, my ex-students are coming back and now there's a, there's a massive group, I think over 30 of them. But what's happened is they're coming back now, but they're coming back and their friends are getting in contact with me. And, and they say to their friends, oh, Mr. Pinder may be able to help you do this and help you do that and give you advice about this, this, this. So I thought, you know, what could I, what could I call this? And I'll just land there and I just thought homegrown. You yeah. know, they're all homegrown from myself. And the pluses who are valued as much as my homegrown mm-hmm. are the ones that they bring to me. So that's how homegrown plus uh, evolved. And, and through that, I've worked with uh, one of my fantastic young architects. She's now studying at uh, masters at Central St. Martins so she was going around the world so also I get students involved while they're in school at different in, in different architectural projects like Accelerate into University which is run by Open House which is a two year year 11 and 12 program so it gives and it, it was in conjunction with the Bartlett um, and it gets them thinking and getting them more involved 
in, in, in the world of architecture and it introduces, it introduces them to the architecture, it helps them with portfolio work, it gets them to draw, think, etc. That's that one. And then there's an engineering um, uh, initiative called the Art Rights College, Art Rights Scholarship, sorry, that I get students to, 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 um, to do this examination um, so that for years 11 and 12, they can get a scholarship and get, I think it's about 200, 300 pounds. And it enables them to get books, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But also the beauty of it all, they get mentored. They get uh, by uh, a practice, by uh, engineering practice. Uh, they get uh, mentored in terms of when it comes to their university applications, because these are connected to the Russell Group for Universities, this scholarship. So mm -hmm. they have a really good backup system there. And also all the other programs like the New London Architecture, when they do competitions, and I'm all, always got my ear out for different competitions that students can enter as um <clears throat> architectural teams or as, as individuals. So it's a matter of uh, tuning in, feeding in, getting involved in all those sort of activity accessible if you know mm -hmm. sort of activities that enable students to basically get involved in the world of architecture. So homegrown started to grow and grow and grow and it's growing now. And this year, sorry, last year was one of our best years in terms of um I started something called glam yes so yes. what i what so what I wanted to do is so I had all of these people around me, and I'm thinking, let's connect them, still connecting, 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 connecting um uh my architectural world into the real world and vice versa so uh one of my students, and this is a really sad, but out of, uh, uh, of a sad case came happiness. So uh, she was a textile student and her teacher said to me, look, Miss Appendix, do you think you could just get her to do the portfolio work? It's the same as product design. Well, it's product design, but it's textile focus, but it's the same syllabus. Right. Because she lacks a bit of confidence. And so she would come to me at lunchtime and, and she'd come to me after school, bring her friends. And I would just show her what to do on her portfolio. And she was like a sponge. She did everything. And then she said, look, I'm going to look around at a couple of, uh, this was a year 11 student. Mm -hmm. I'm going to look around uh, at a couple of um, colleges where I might want to go and do fashion because that's, that's her, her passion. And uh, she said, um, I'm just going to go around and have a look around before I go in your year 12. And she went there and she came back to me. And, and, and this is where um, lecturers and teachers have got to be so sensitive to young people and not just dismiss them. She was dismissed, just saying, oh, you'll never make it as a fashion designer. And she came back a bit broken. Mm -hmm. and, I said to, and I said to her, look, don't worry, let's, let's get a program together and, and so that you can show off your talent. And all the kids know I wear Gucci, they know I like wear Louis Vuitton in school. I, you know, I bling a bit. As you should, you deserve to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I do bling a bit. So what I was sitting, I had another vision. So I sat there and, I, and, and one day I just said to myself, Gucci, 
I love Gucci, architecture, Louis Vuitton, and me. <laughs> and then I told, I, I said to Venetia, Venetia uh, loved the idea. And then I've got an architect called Ramsey Yasser, who's got Norma Studios, who's absolutely fantastic. I've got him involved. And he turned it into, he put the words around and called it Glam. Gucci, Louis Vuitton, architecture, and me. Just like that. And so um, I, I was talking with um, with one of my friends, with, with, with a friend of mine. So her name is Harriet Harris. If you ever uh, have the opportunity to listen to Professor Harriet Harris, she's the dean of the Pratt University in New York. And she's amazing. And so I... I, I text Harriet and then I had a conversation and I said to her look uh, I've got this idea and she supported me with, 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 with the ideas and the initiatives and she said Neil you know what that is what you've got it's called a Trojan horse." and I said what do you mean she says what it is the, it's the vehicle that everybody looks at mm. but on the inside you have captured yeah You've captured the young people mm. through being able to give them this opportunity to, to design. So what I did, <clears throat> I turned it into, I turned it into, uh, um, I turned it into a, a Zoom workshop because of the COVID happened. I had, I was going to do seven architects, seven textile students um, um, at Elliot Woods Architecture, at Ed, Elliot Woods Engineering, Structural Engineering Company, who uh, was going to give me a space on a Saturday. We were going to bring architects there. So assembled, we're up for it. They gave me a little bit of money. Ellis from uh, AF gave me a bit of money to get the project together. And then COVID happened. And then it worked out in a good way because then I thought, let's do it online. I entered it for the uh, I entered it as for the London Festival of Architecture because there it was it followed a theme that they were that they were they were doing. So um, we got the closing day of the London Festival of Architecture where we did this Zoom workshop called Glam Gucci Louis and Architecture and me and literally we had people in South Africa come to it attending it etc. and then. We made a, a small video of it, and bam, that was it. Um, Glam really started to take on a, a life of its own. And we had, I had people like Rosie Murphy, who's a brilliant young architect who's studying in Wales, uh, Ramsey uh, from Norma, um, and Central St. Martin supported it, um, uh, the AS supported it, and um, we had all-round support for it and support and sponsorship for it. So that's how Glam started. The last one we did was in November, which went, which was even bigger and even better. We always have a, a, a panel discussion at the beginning. So now with Glam is connect or homegrown, because that's the vehicle at that Glam workshop, uh, we're connected to uh, Bolivia, uh, we've got uh, a woman called um, Naomi Paynow in Bolivia who's connected to 53 different artists, uh, countries around the world. And we're, we're hoping to do a, 
a conference based off of this. Um, so this is how everything starts to grow. And the pandemic has been a way that we've been able to metamorphosize as well. Because if you think about it, mm-hmm. if it weren't for the pandemic, I would have just stuck in the central London WC2. And then the amount of people that I would have been able to catch out mm-hmm. of that would have been limited. But now we're actually, actually global. So um, that is how homegrown are, are grown. And out of that, we're, we're at the beginning, we're just in the process of um, organizing this conference that I told you about. And it's called From Small to Big to Small. So this is, you know, you talk about connectivity and how do we owe, do we, what do we owe other people? Well, what we're doing are micro-connections right now. But it's going to go macro-connection because you're going to post it so everybody else would hear it. They would hear your inspirational sort of ideas coming out of this. They'd hear mine. But even more important, um, this conference that we're doing, it, it, it looks at all the micro-connections that we make every day. But we're through the the global, through the digitalization of everything, going to go global. So we're, we're connecting, so I'm talking with people. I've got architect in UTEC in Jamaica, where when I was young, I didn't know there was an architectural practice at Architectural University in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So I'm connected to the, to, to the head of um, the undergraduates at Jamaica and, and UTEC. And, um, and there's another young lady who's part of Homegrown Plus. She's in Jamaica setting up connections. Mm-hmm. So we've got Jamaica. We're going to Toronto. I work with another inspirational woman called Maria Ferron, and she's at Oxford Brooks. She's amazing. So she's setting, she's in uh, Toronto or Ontario at the moment, setting up connections. So we're in India, all over. The, we're literally we're we're going to be spreading the word that creativity really does change lives and from non-traditional and traditional people. And just one, sorry, I know I'm talking, but there's just one little off spin off of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, 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 I was started it, but I didn't finish it because I just went a little bit off track. There's a fantastic young lady that I used to teach called Caitlin Latimer-Jones. And when she was... Uh, uh, going around the world and I was explaining it. Basically, she'd been through different programs like Accelerate into Architecture. And what happened, Caitlin, she did a degree up in Sheffield, I think. And then she, she's always been connecting to me. So she connected me. She says, uh, look, Mr. Pinner, I'm back now. Um, I'm back now. Uh, is there any stuff that you're doing? Because I know you're always doing something. I said, so, well, actually, I've got this idea it's called Homegrown Plus One Hour. And she said, what's that? And so we met. And it's a program that we've been, we, we, trailed, we trialed about two years ago. And it's just there in, in, in its incubation phase, just ready for when we come out of the pandemic to get going again. So Homegrown Plus One Hour is we take seven students into, we devise a program. It's called Pod Living. So Caitlin designed or what it's like because she's been through the first phases of being an architect, getting on the road to an architecture. She knew some of the questions that the students will want to ask yeah. before they got into architecture. And, 
and and we devised this one-hour program where they and we made the blocks and we made every all of the different tools that they would need in a workshop. So, um, sorry to build um, the building that the, the little pod that we were going to introduce into them. So we give them a bit of work to do, and we say to them, right, we're going to take you to an architectural practice, and for one hour you're going to work with this architectural practice to redesign pods. So we took three different buildings. So we took uh, the Haywood Gallery, uh, Peckham Heights, and uh, uh, another building which escaped me. And we said, what you have to do is design these pods, which like little blocks that we got, to hang off the building because there's a, a lack of housing for young people. How would you do this? And so we took it to play, uh, Sarah Wigglesworth, we took it to Assemble, we took it to Karakusevich Carson, and then we finished off that public practice. So all of these architects were able, with, with different students that I've got each time, different groups of students each time, they were able to go into these practices, experience what the practice was like, but at, at the same time still work Mm. with qualified architects so that is the idea of homegrown plus one hour Mm -hmm. and and, and it's quite an idea that can be spread out laterally yeah so yeah so that's what I had to I had to get in there about Caitlin she was amazing she uh, basically wrote it up and you know in her architectural language that people could understand etc and this is what I need I need people that can, try, can translate my ideas into architectural terminology. And what they need is somebody like me who can connect to non-traditional and traditional people, be they young, old, or whatever. And that's how the two-way street works. That's how the karma works. Yeah, that's that concept of conviviality. I think last time you told me something really interesting and you said that the digital form is unstoppable and you've just pretty much shown how that has worked. So the fact that the pandemic didn't stop you from putting on all the projects that you wanted to put on, like Glam, rather, like you said, it metamorphosized it and changed it into something even bigger. Because I think it's interesting that, you know, geographically you can be quite constricted by doing something physically. So like in person, it would have just been in London, like you said, but doing it online just allowed you to connect with people all over the world. And then you were like, oh, I can actually do this. I can continue to build on that as well. Kind of not letting the idea steer you too much, but letting the circumstances also expand and grow the idea is something really, really interesting. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say that because that was very, very, um, just very interesting to see how it panned out. Um, something else that you mentioned as well was the equation of money, power plus money plus control. Um, and that was really, so you explain that kind of like as a mathematical formula. So like you've got Pythagoras or whatever it is, power plus money plus control. What does that mean and why is it important to identify the stakeholders in this? Right. So one of your questions, um, what is the importance that we acknowledge the social and political um, issues needed, needs society has and how do we do this? Right. So that is where this slots in. So what I did is, is the pandemic, there's three things in history that's happened recently that's changed history. 
mm-hmm. or, or change the narrative. Um, number one, the pandemic. Everybody knows what what happens in the what's happening in the pandemic. How we've had to uh, press a pause button. If it weren't for the pandemic, we may not have been having this conversation by digital means. Yeah. If it wasn't for the pandemic, you may not have thought, let me exploit, let me use our podcasting as a vehicle to express and get over and add it to my repertoire of my thesis for my uh, marketing. Mm-hmm. Right? So it has made us think, stop, think, let's see how we can communicate. It's not the final solution, but it's another way of communicating with people, looking at, seeing getting expressions from people because we've got masks on now where we, we where, where before we can look at people's uh, noses and around their mouths and get some idea of, of, of a reaction. So this way we can interact as human beings at, while at the same time being able to see expressions once you've got your camera on, right? So, um, so that, that, that's what that's done. Mm-hmm. But, it's also shown the vulnerability of us as human beings in terms of how we're so connected, how whether we like to think of it or not, um, we are independent, we're, we're interlocking, so we're, in, inter, yeah, we're interlocking with other people every single day that we are. And, and viruses, bugs, whatever, they don't have any colour, race, or barriers, yeah. they will communicate with each, with, with each other. So if we visualise it like that, so that's why, getting back to one of your earlier questions, we still have to, we must communicate, we must work as a society to move forward because without that, we will still, we will still fall apart. Mm-hmm. And then the other um, uh, uh, thing that came out of the pandemic is the digitalization how we digitally contact. So that is everybody, and I'm not going to go too much into that because that is part of everyday life. Uh, Instagram, WhatsApp, Zoom, uh, uh, whatever, whatever, is part of everyday life. But the other part of this equation, which um, combined the digital and the narrative, was, and which is helping to change the narrative, is the death of George Floyd. And what people are still coming to terms with of who don't understand what's happened mm-hmm. and who are trying to reclaim this narrative is the fact that George Floyd was was basically sent around the world digitally. It was a, a, a situation where the traditional people, the people in power, the people who have the power, weren't able to stifle the message straight away and then give out their message seven, mm-hmm. 10, 15 days later. Mm-hmm. So, and combine that with the fact that young people of race, creed, color, religion, sexuality saw that for the first time, we're all one. Don't matter what part of the world, we all share some commonalities about each other. And we who are the underrepresented, we who are the oppressed, we are the people from non-traditional and traditional backgrounds, we the people suddenly can come together and we've got so much in common. Yeah. 
I almost saw it like a domino effect, I think, last year, because after that happened and the message was spread worldwide, everybody got involved. Then you had so many more protests, more protesters actually going out on the streets to fight for other things. So, I mean, you had students in like Malaysia, you had the Hong Kong mm-hmm. protests, which are, you know, their own problems, but <coughs> way more accessible and everyone was able to really take part. There was the NSARS movement as well in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, just so much of people coming together to really realise what's going on and being able to, like you said, speak about it before politicians and before like the institutes can create their own sanitized version and disperse that. Like, I think there was just way more involvement in like world politics and it works on that conviviality. Like what do we owe each other? It was always share this post, share what's going on. We should know what is happening like in the other corners of the world because we are like a more globalized society. So yeah, I definitely felt that a lot last year. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 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 you're totally right. And that's what you saw. That's what mm. people around the world, like you, like me, like them, like whoever, saw. Mm-hmm. And so now we're. I, I, I said to my friend the other day, I think it's the Lord of the Rings, and um, there's the battle for Middle Earth. Right. It, yeah. Right. So at this precise moment, what we've got, we've got a situation where. The people who have had the power mm-hmm. for generations, yeah, four, five, six hundred years, the people who have had the power, they've been able to put the message out mm-hmm. consistently. Mm-hmm. Every day, three, six, five, seven days a week, blah, 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 the seven days. Right. They've been able to, to do that. But suddenly, they realise that they haven't got control of the narrative. No, no. They haven't. And and like the Trojan Hall, mm-hmm. like GLAM, which is infusing young people for, or infusing people from non-traditional and traditional backgrounds to get involved in determining, to look at their own society, suddenly people are getting, beginning to realise, well, we do have a certain amount of power, mm-hmm. but it's how we use that power, because with great power comes great responsibility. That's a quote from Superman, by the way, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right, it's not my quote, <laughs> right? So, right? Um, so with great power comes great responsibility. And the thing about it is they want to get control of this power. So what the people in the power have They'll be getting in contact with people like yourself. They'll be getting in contact with people like me. They'll be getting people contact like like-minded people because what they want to do is to sieve it out our thought process, sieve out our message, mm-hmm. rebrand it into an articulate form document which, san- as you use that word, sanitizes what we're thinking. Mm-hmm. And then they want to sell it back to us, like, hey, guys, we've got this. All about the thinking- narrative. Like, they always want to maintain control of the narrative because when you give it mm-hmm. give that power to the people, it's going to serve the people rather than serve that, like, 1% or that one top group. So you definitely see it a lot. But what I love about, like, this generation and this age that we're living in is the internet 
doesn't allow for that. Because we're active on the internet, we control like the internet and we can spread our messages and, you know, the things that we care about on the internet. That kind of, that power distribution is definitely being challenged like a lot, I think, in this day and age. Well, it is, it is. But don't, um, don't totally rely on the internet because mm. you can see what the internet can do with people like when it falls into the wrong hands. Right. You can still manipulate a massive amount of people, like 75 million people could be manipulated into thinking that something happened, something has happened when it, when 84 million people know that it didn't happen that way, you yeah. see? So we have to be careful as well and build in uh, measures. So mm-hmm. this equation that we have to look at, power, money and control, is as I said to you, it's like Pythagoras. He has been, who's been the bane of my life because I'm absolutely useless at math. Um, he basically worked out that if you had this height and this length and you did this, this, you could um, work out the, the, the actual area. So it doesn't matter how long, how tall, how whatever, you can calculate it using this formula. So if we, as, or you, as the new generation coming forward, Say to yourself, let's forget race, let's forget colour, let's forget sexuality, let's forget religion, let's forget all of the isms that we've been fed that has divided people, races, colours, creeds for generations and generations. If we just uh, focus on who's got the power, because mm. the people with the power are the ones who push out the narrative and they're, they're all of these, um, these, diversionary words, racism, sexism, da 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 they, Yes, they are really important. I'm not devaluing them. But if we just put those aside just for one minute and say we're one person, we're one race, we're one, one, human, we're one uh, uh, human being, if we put those to the side and realize that, then we say to ourselves, right, who has the power? Who has the most to gain from pushing that narrative? Mm. And then once you work that out, then you say to yourself, now, what have they gained from it? Right, they've gained the control. But what is their ultimate aim? To make the money. And that's their bottom line. And that is where we have to look at things Mm. today. So when somebody comes to me and says, yes, Neil, I'd really like to work with you, to do our EDI, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you've never contacted me before. Why are you contacting me at this precise moment? Mm-hmm. And then you, and if they're genuine, you can see they're genuine. But if they want, want just to push out another power, money and control scenario, then you'll realise it. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why I use the word non-traditional and traditional. Because no matter what race you are, what creed, what colour you are, you could be non-traditional. I'm non-traditional because my parents were never architects. My parents were never um, uh, artists, creative. They were all, or my mum was a nurse and my dad was a carpenter, right? So they were all, and then my parents, like most parents from my background, wanted me to be an accountant, a doctor, whatever, whatever. But creativity was my, my base. Mm-hmm. And so if you can recognize these, these things, then you can actually really, really 
the world just opens up. You see? And, and then you can say to yourself, right, if we, and this is where the connections come back to our original conversations, connecting to like-minded people, there's a whole world out there of non-traditional people. And then there's a whole world of traditional people. Traditional people is, yes, your mum may be a doctor, she may have been an architect, she may have been this, may have been that, but are they still encouraging you to be creative? Or are they just saying to you, just go and make the money? Mm. And so this is where I'm looking at, and it doesn't matter what colour, what race, what religion you are, non-traditional, traditional. And this is how, I mean, I may, I'm, I know it's simplistic, but if for me, if I'm working from a common denominator that I can actually envision, I can see, and I can talk about it, then I realise that there must be something in it. Life is not that complicated. It doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. It just has, it has, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, that part is just really important. You can uncomplicate certain things by bringing things into the world. So, for example, like you said, the students, they they all have these questions. We all have so many questions before we enter, like, a profession. Like, what's it going to be like? How can I connect to here? How can I get this internship? But those answers are always so obscured or so hidden away or you have to know, to, to know the right people or to do so much research to find it. So I think having someone that kind of sits in the middle of that connection and kind of like just bridges that gap is really important because it makes you see that your aspirations aren't that complicated at all. Like you can achieve them. It is possible. You just needed to be able to see that. But I think it's really hard to do as a young student before you've even entered anywhere. And even when you finish, like I've done my part one, but it's it's still difficult to know exactly like who can I talk to so I can get this project done? Who can I, like where can I go to get this done? So yeah, that's why the work you do to bridge those gaps and to bridge those connections is really important. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is, it is totally essential that, yes, you do, I mean, lot, some people, I mean, I'd love to be rich. I would love to be rich. I'm not, I'm not lying, you know. No. I, I, I don't make no bones about it, yeah. you know. But, you know, I would love to be, but unfortunately, that isn't my karma in life. Mm. You know, my karma in life is, and, and, and my sort of, path that's been laid out to me through whatever God you believe in has said, you know, Neil, you have to basically, your, your, your sort of path of life is to connect, help, work. Yes, you can be comfortable, mm-hmm. but you're never going to be able to get that, you know, Ferrari, Maserati, etc. that you <clears throat> can envision yourself stepping out and stepping out of you. It's never going to happen. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. I'm really happy and I'm comfortable because I love my life and I love the life of people around me and I love the people I connect to. I'd rather be here than have multiple riches and still be on my own. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in a far better place. Mm-hmm. But you have to be able to recognize that and, um, and don't be scared to talk about, as I said to you, don't be scared to talk about money. Don't be scared to talk about it. Know your worth, know your wealth. It's just because you're doing something, helping other people and working and connecting and you're following your passion, it doesn't mean that you should be free. And this is the 
ideology that people tend to tend to think, oh, you you you're following your passion, so you should be able to do this for free. No. Why? Sit back, exploit and get what you get and say that you are the 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 sort of forebearer, the enlightened, the whatever, the shining star. No. Mm-hmm. Know your value, know your worth and know that you deserve for your heart felt passion, you deserve to be rewarded. And don't be shy about talking about the money side of things. Because that is where the people with the power, mm-hmm. they make us, I mean, I used to feel guilty. They make you try and feel guilty when you ask for this or ask for that. Yeah. And that's part of the whole power trip. Mm-hmm. Part of the whole control, keeping you in that box. Yeah, I think, again, just on the idea of, like, the control of the power, I kind of relate it back to the way knowledge was controlled as well in the past. So, like, mm-hmm. throw it back, like, 200, 300 years. It would only be a certain demographic or a certain type of person that could be a scholar or could um, mm-hmm. learn about things. And that system was maintained for a very long time to almost create an ideology that other people would not be able to achieve the the achievements that those people did. But what you see in today's world is when you open up that knowledge, when you share that knowledge and give people more access to it, so many people of different races, creed, colours, like you said, can create amazing things. So I think that's like a really interesting thing to show like how we've um, how we've changed and how even knowledge has become more convivial and more of a shared resource uh, today. Mm. And it's kind of like this idea of like who holds the keys and who has the ability to shape the information that we share and who has access to it. And what you're doing is just you're opening the doors for more people to have access to that knowledge and to work on new projects, create it, like explore different means of creativity with that as well. And it relates back again to like that power, money, control. Um, It's like, you asked who who currently is still in charge of that, like who still is the stakeholders of that power, money, control, and why is it important that it reflects the society that we're in? I mean, the reason why is because you, you just hit on it, education. Mm-hmm. Right? If you keep people in the dark, they will have no aspiration. If you give somebody a book, you give them the internet now, yeah. whether it be good or bad, you're opening another avenue to their to their mind, mm-hmm. to their mindset, to the way they're thinking. And so as we've spoken about, for generations, this has been controlled, mm-hmm. what we read. I mean, for example, um, with myself, I, d- I don't fit all those stereotypes uh, that people... Uh, uh, look at me. So when I go into an architectural practice, it's like um, I'm short for number one. Well, you know, I'm not six foot. And people tend to think, oh, what's that short guy doing in it? Sort of thing. And when they hear me talking with not this culture, that sense that he's been not been to private school, they think there's something wrong here. You know, because I'm not ticking those boxes. And so I say to people, look, I'm not an architect. But I've got really good backup. Mm. 
And that's what and, and that's what it's all about. It's about working with, as I said, people. And so when they hear me talk in architectural terms, when they, they see that I can infuse people to become architects, suddenly it still doesn't compute because their traditional uh, 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 entitled mind, should we say. To even compute that you could have something that's like a worthy idea to share and to like build on, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so... When they, when they, when they realise it, it's too late because it, it, I've got a saying, it, it's very hard to make, uh, to make a first impression twice, right? So to them, I'm this and I've come in as this and they're trying to read me, but because it doesn't meet their algorithms of what they're used to, there's something, some wires have just gone a bit haywire. And then by the time they realize somewhere down the line that, you know, well, this guy is not an architect, but he's got X number of architectural highbrow people around him who respect him because they respected me for who I am, not the fact that I was connected to somebody else. And that is the beauty of it all. Mm -hmm. And then, then the people who do respect me say, sit me down, talk with me. I'm humble enough to say, I'm doing that. They say to me, look, Neil, why don't you do it this way? And why don't you think of it this way? And I'm working on a project now where the architects are, are sitting with me and they say to me, look, Neil, uh, let's think about this and let's have, see how I'm humble enough to understand that they do know what they're talking about and they've got my best interest at heart, which is the key word. Yeah. They've got my best interest at heart. But you've got to be humble enough. Humility is the greatest gift in life. You've got to be humble enough to realize that if somebody is giving you advice, listen to it and work it out if it's the advice for you. Mm-hmm. But if, it, if you've got genuine people around you, then it's for you. Yeah. It's not going to harm you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think we can end it here, unless you have any final thoughts. Yeah. Can you put your palms together like this? Mm-hmm. Oh, listen, I've really, really, really enjoyed this talk, and I'd like to see it, you know, in a script or something. It looks it, Between us, we, we're a good team. Maybe we can, well, an architectural show program. Yeah, yeah it would be amazing. Yeah. 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 But... <laughs> right, so if you put your palms together, mm-hmm. so this is what I do every single lesson at the end of my class. Palms to heart, the actions of peace. Palms to lips, the words of truth. Palms to head, for thoughts, love, peace and happiness. The inner light in me honours and recognises the beautiful inner light in you. Have a fantastic day. Namaste. Namaste to you as well. Thank you very much for that. It's been your host, Lauren Lois, and it's been my pleasure to speak with Neil Pinder about conviviality today. In our outro, we're playing something a little bit jazzy and reminiscent of bebop as a shout out to Neil, who put me on to Miles Davis's Feeling Blue album. It's a great piece of music and you guys should check it out too. 
For students and creative individuals, this episode was definitely created with you in mind. And really just for anyone who fears the validity of their unconventional approach to architecture and design, I hope that the nuggets of wisdom shared today encourage you to network and keep pushing to pursue your ideas and endeavours. Namaste everyone and thank you for listening.